Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, man, I love baptisms. Well, we have that on our mind, by the way, just and there'll be information coming out about this later, but we are going to do a beach baptism, uh, and we're going to do it November 13, 9 o'clock. It'll be out on Fort Lauderdale Beach. It'll be where, like, the basketball courts are. There will be flags and signs and us standing in the street going, hey, so you won't be able to miss us. But I say that because every once in a while, somebody comes up and goes, what do I need to do to get baptized in this place? And we're like, oh my goodness, we've got to make it clear. So this is a great opportunity for you, if you have not been baptized, to come out. We would love to celebrate that with you. And we're also going to add a second group to this. So one of the things that Dr. Gage and I have have experienced over in Israel is we, we take groups of people over there. And, you know, I mean, it's the Jordan River, guys, like... You know, you want to get baptized in the Jordan River. And the problem is that most of the people we take on the trip have already been baptized and we don't re-baptize people. And so we're like, what do we do? Because we don't re-baptize people. But for crying out loud, it's the Jordan River. I'm like, Warren, I'm getting in the river. Like, so you're going to baptize me. I don't care. We're doing this thing. And so something kind of cool has developed from that. You know, we've said, you know what? We teach on baptism. We explain, like Sam did this morning, how profound it is, how beautiful it is, what Jesus has done for you, all that it signifies. And then we say, look, if you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, this is a great opportunity to do it. And then to mark that by reenacting your baptism. I want to challenge you with that. We want to do that for you out on the beach. We did this once before and we had, you know, people come out who had never been baptized and then we had people come out and they said, yeah, no, no, I, I want to, I want to experience that. Like I want to mark this moment by having you guys put me under the water. And it's very, very powerful. So I say that to those two groups, to the third group who's like, yeah, I don't know, you know, like I don't need either of those. Okay, well, come out and celebrate with us because we'd love to have you actually join us. It's fun, you know, bring the kids, bring some blankets. We're out on the beach, it's nice, and and just a good community feel and a good community event, okay? So November 13, there will be information to follow, but just put that kind of on your calendar, if you will. All right, well, as we continue today with our study of the book of Isaiah, we come to the fourth and the final song that God, through the prophet Isaiah, writes and then adds into the book of Isaiah. And as we've seen again and again and again, and we'll see again today, what these songs do is they look forward 700 to 750 years in time to the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, they look forward in time and they comprehend his ministry. And then, in effect, they answer questions about them. So the questions that we're going to deal with today are three. You ready? Number one, why did God send Jesus into the world? Because 700 to 750 years before he came into the world, God's like, hey, let me, let me explain this. I'm going to tell you in advance, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Number two, who did God send Jesus into the world for? I'd like to know the answer to that. That seems pretty relevant, at least if he is who he claims to be. And then lastly, why do we miss him? Because what Isaiah sees is that Jesus is going to come into the world and, you know, it's not like everybody's going to be following him. In fact, think about this. When he is crucified in the end, where were the thousands of people that he healed? Where were they? Where were the tens of thousands of people who marveled over his teaching? Oh, Jesus, you're amazing. Where were they? Where were the disciples? I mean, you know, John was there. I mean, there's some. But he mostly dies alone. People missed him. 
People missed him then, they missed him in the next century, and the next, and the next, and the next, and all the way up to our present day. I mean, look, there are a lot of Christians in the world, there's no doubt, but when you, when you balance it out, Christian against non-Christian, it's weighted pretty heavy on the other side of the scale, is it not? Isaiah's like, what in the world? And that's actually where we start. He says this in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is a lament. He's looking forward, he's seeing, eh, they're not believing, and he's like broken over it. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I want to just stop and say, does that break you? As you look at the people you work with, as you look at the people you go to school with, as you look at the people that are in your family, as you look at the people that are in your neighborhood, I mean, is there a lament in your heart, like this this crying out passion where you're like, what in the world? What's going on? Why? All right, well, now he tells us why. And he talks about the way Jesus comes, the way he presents. He says, for he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him, Father God, like a what? Like a young plant. Is that helpful to you? No, you're like, what am I, an arborist? You know, like, what does that even mean, you know? Beth and I spent a bunch of time up in North Carolina, and there's like poison ivy everywhere. We learned that, by the way, by experience. And so I bought this really expensive app on my phone. It's called Picture This. It's actually kind of cool. Like, I mean, I just do it for kicks at this point because I know nothing about plants. But you just walk up and you take a picture of it, and then it tells you what it is, you know. I just wanted to know, is it poison ivy or is it... Virginia creeper, which is actually another vine. It's not some creepy dude in Virginia. It's hard to tell the difference, okay? What is, so what is this? What is he talking about here? He's talking about what an actual arborist, somebody who actually knows things about plants, somebody who owns like, you know, vineyards and, and orchards full of fruit trees, for example, would call a sucker shoot. I've got a picture. You see these things, they grow up out of the stump of the tree or they grow up out of like exposed roots in the tree, these, these little things. And what do these things do? They steal nutrients out of the tree. So if you're the guy that owns the tree or an orchard's full of these trees, you don't like these things because you want your tree to produce fruit. Now you've got all these things that are growing up competing for water and for nutrients and for whatnot that the roots are bringing up out of the soil. And so what does an arborist do for one of these sucker shoots? He clips that dude off. He's like, this sucker's got to go, and this sucker's got to go, and you get the idea? They're not a positive. They're not even a neutral. They're a negative. Isaiah's looking forward. He's like, yeah, okay, so here's how people are going to perceive him. Not a positive, not even a neutral. But a negative is something that's an irritant, is something you just want to clip off and get, get rid of this, get, get rid of this, get rid of this. He grew up before him like a young plant, and then he continues, and he says, and like a root out of dry ground. How much life do you expect to come out of a root out of dry ground, okay? You don't have to be an arborist for this one answer, none. It's dry ground, there's nothing to draw. He says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing about Jesus that said, High King of Heaven, Savior of the world. He was a peasant, Galilean Jew, slave of the Roman Empire, carpenter. 
He didn't come with the emblems of majesty and the emblems of power and all of the various aspects of, of the things that we look at and we go, oh, that person's a ruler, oh, that person's a leader, oh, that person's a deliverer, oh, that person is somebody we can place our hope in. He's flying under the radar completely. It says that he had no beauty that we should desire him. So like if Jesus, working as a carpenter in Nazareth, you know, was like delivering a chair or something, and he's walking down the street, first century Nazareth, and you walk past him, you wouldn't even look at him. I mean, you might wonder, what's with the chair? But, like, that's it. In other words, there would be nothing about the way that he appears physically that would say, High King of Heaven, Savior of the world. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. And notice why. Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Remember that language. How does Jesus present? He presents as somebody who looks, at least, like he's the one who needs help. He doesn't present as somebody who looks like he's going to offer it. It says, and, and then as he is as one from whom men hide their faces. Why? Because at the end of his life, and that's where Isaiah takes us. Every one of these songs is increasing in suffering. This one is crucifixion followed by resurrection. We're at the end. He is so beaten. He is so scourged. He's crucified. He's, he's so grotesque, guys, that it's hard to look at. How many of you have, have seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie? Go ahead. You can raise your hand. Okay, yeah. It's hard to watch. I mean, seriously, like we get to some parts and I'm like, can we fast forward? This is painful to me. Like I'm looking at it through little holes in my hand. Like, I mean, it is really hard to watch. He became as one from whom men turned their faces. And so then he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Why? Because we looked at him and we said, oh, come on, seriously? Like, this is the high king of heaven and the savior of the world. And yet, what were we missing in that equation? What are we missing? What we're missing is that the high king of heaven and savior of the world had to descend that low to lay hold of us. Guys, Jesus is anything but ordinary. Can we agree with that? And yet he comes ordinary. He assumes our ordinariness. Why? So that he might lay hold of us by the power of his spirit, through the power of his gospel. He might shape us by his word and reform our hearts and minds, our values and everything about us. He might place us into a body, a covenant community of God in which we learn to live for him, in which we're molded into his image and by which then we become what? Ordinary? No. Extraordinary. Different different from everyone who doesn't follow him. Think about that. We're supposed to be different. Jesus was anything but powerless, but he assumed our weakness. And by his spirit, he might make us a powerful people. Look, the church is not supposed to be cowered off in a closet somewhere. We're not supposed to be lame. We're not supposed to limp around. We're not supposed to be weak. We're supposed to be strong. Jesus was anything but ugly and grotesque, and yet he clothed himself in all of my ugliness and yours that he might put it to death in his own body on the cross and then make us beautiful. Jesus deserved anything but crucifixion and death. And yet he was crucified and killed because that's what we deserve. See, the irony of the gospel is that we look at Jesus and the very things that we reject him for don't belong to him. They belong to me, they belong to you, and it's what Isaiah says next. In verse 4, he says, surely he, watch the pronouns, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You remember that language? Because just a little while ago, he said he's a man of sorrows acquainted with griefs. And now he's going, and guess whose sorrows and griefs? Not his, ours. And yet we looked at him and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We assumed for his own issues, but really for ours. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his stripes, we're healed. And then what does he do? Now he's going to describe us like sheep, which is sort of like saying a young plant. You know, I mean, if you're not a shepherd, it's really, it's not all that helpful. But if you know some of the characteristics of sheep, you start going, okay, now I can relate to that. Why? Because sheep, for example, are single-minded creatures. They are focused on one thing. Do you know what they're focused on? The next clump of grass. That's it. They are utterly and entirely driven by their appetites and trying to fulfill them, okay? And so they go from this clump of grass to this clump of grass. This one here, this one there, this one, 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 this one. And then eventually something gets their attention and they look up from all they're eating and they're all alone. The flock is gone, the shepherd is gone, and they haven't left that sheep. The sheep in the pursuit of his passions has left them. Okay, I think that's something we should all be able to relate to, honestly. He's saying, look, we're like sheep. And what do we do? In in pursuit of fulfillment of our appetites, an appetite for love, an appetite to be recognized, an appetite to be listened to, an appetite to be celebrated, an appetite to whatever. We go from one clump of grass to the next, to the next, to the next, never satisfied by any of it, by the way. And we just keep going and going and going and going until at some point we look up and we realize we've crossed every boundary we've ever established. And we think to ourselves, where am I and how in the heck did I get here? And now what do I do? So that's one characteristic of sheep. Another characteristic is that when you scare them, they just run in any direction. There's no premeditation. There's no strategy. It's just like you scare me and I go, why? You know, and I go this way, even though there's like a cliff this way. There's a bear this way. There's a fence. Now I'm trapped this way. Like there's nowhere for me to go. I think we can relate to that too. Something fearful happens and we just start grabbing anything, anything that might help, anything that might salve, anything that might bring peace, anything that might work, anything. All right, the last thing that I think is important about sheep is that once they're lost, because they've bolted off or they've just wandered away and then went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, where am I? And they just lay down. They don't like pull out a compass and go, I think we were that way. You know, like I'm trying to refigure my steps and find the little, oh, it looked like I ate that one and maybe I was here and here's my, no, they just collapse in their lostness. What does that do? Well, Practically speaking, it makes them subject to predators. So the next wolf that comes along, they're like a sitting target. But what it means is that if they're going to get found, how's it going to happen? Not by their efforts. Their efforts has made them lost. It means the shepherd's going to have to come looking. You know, Jesus comes into the world. He describes himself as the good shepherd, the good shepherd who, by the way, lays down his life for his sheep. But then he gives us stories to help us understand what that looks like. Like, what does it mean? The high king of heaven has left heaven to come to earth. That's how far he's come to find you. And what does he say about his sheep? He's like, you know, when when one of them wanders off, I, I safely pen up the others so they're good and I know it. 
and then I, I go to look for the sheep until, you know, like it's dinner time, and then I come home because, I mean, i got to eat. On, no. I go looking until I just get frustrated, you know, just thinking about the sheep. I'm like, how many times is this going to happen with you? This dumb sheep has done this like 43 times. No, no, 44 times. 44 times. You know what? Stay lost. You apparently like it so much. No. It gets dark. Now it's a problem. I can't even see the sheep. I, it's a hard time finding the f- footprints, you know. I mean, so I'm going home. And darkness just accelerates his pursuit. Look, he realizes that sheep is a sitting duck, okay? <laughs> Unless or until he finds it. And he doesn't relent until he finds his sheep. And then when he does, what does he do? Kick it? Hey, you know what? Get home. Go on. Let's go. Let's go. Is that it? Lecture it. You're lousy. This is time 45. No, no, wait. I forgot another. This is time 46. Like, I'm going to have to make excuses with the other sheep for you. Like, let's go. He gets down in the dirt. He, he grabs the sheep. Smelly, burrs, bugs. Puts it on his shoulders. Carries it home. And when he gets there, he rejoices and he says, he throws a party. He's like, rejoice with me. My my sheep that was lost is found. And you know what the other sheep do? At least if they're in touch with their sheepness. They say, welcome back, brother. I've wandered too. Listen to what Isaiah says. He's right. He says, all we. You're like, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. No, all we. Like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet what has the Lord done? He has laid on Jesus the iniquity, the waywardness of us all. Did you understand what he's saying? He's saying that morally speaking, what Jesus endures, what Jesus becomes, how Jesus is perceived, it's not a picture of him. It's a picture of me. It's a picture of you and what he endures in his suffering, death, and burial, okay, which was infinite in soul and pretty traumatic in body. It's not what he deserved. That's what we deserve. But we don't get that because we don't see ourselves that way. You know, we look at ourselves and we think, I don't know, you know, I mean, I think I'm basically a good person. I just occasionally do bad things. Do you realize that makes no sense at all? No, I mean, seriously, like, and we all fall into this way of thinking. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if we're good people who just occasionally do bad things, then why is it easier to do bad things than good things? Like, why do you have to work to do the good things, but the bad things, that just seems to come naturally. Like when something that matters is on the line and you've got to tell a lie or the truth, which is easier? So much easier. You're driving through traffic. You've got to work on impatience. Is that the way it works for you? You just, you're just naturally patient. You're like, you know what? I'm going to try to be impatient because I don't know. I feel like that would be a new experience for me. Like selfishness, easy. Selflessness, hard. Pridefulness, easy. Humility, hard. Look, if you don't believe me, have kids. <laughs> Sorry. 
No, but really, I mean, that's the mic drop moment, you know? How many of you had to teach your kids how to be selfish? Anybody? Seriously. How about disrespectful? Do you have to role play on that one? You know, like you leave your child and they're, I don't know, four or something in the living room for a second and you go into the kitchen and you know, I don't want to leave them there that long by themselves, but you're making a drink or something for yourself. And then you hear this crash, you know, and you know what it is. It's one of your lamps that was handed down by generations and it's now shattered on your tile floor. And then you come back in and you say to your child, what happened? Meanwhile, you and they are the only people in the house and, you know, and they're like, I don't know. How did this, did you do this? No. You little liar if you weren't so cute, you know, like, come on. You don't have to teach them to lie. You'll never have to teach them to throw a temper tantrum. Hey, so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to teach you how to throw a temper tantrum. Mom is actually going to get on the floor and she's going to role play this because you've never seen it. You know, and this is so foreign to you that now we're going to practice. So when she's done, then I want you to get on the floor and I want you to practice and then you're going to practice. We're going to do this three or four times. Then we're going to get in the car and we're going to go to Publix and then we're going to get in the checkout line. We're going to deny you a candy bar and then we want you to just drop to the floor. Guys, we're... We're not good people that occasionally do bad things. Bad comes easy. We, we learn to mask it a bit, you know, as we get older. So now we don't throw a fit. We just don't speak to our spouse for like a year, you know, like we, we're passive aggressive. That's, that's a different way of doing it, but it's really just the same thing. We're not good people that occasionally do bad things. We're bad people that occasionally do good things. But we feel like we're good people because there's always somebody around us that's worse than us. I mean, you know, I mean, there's somebody or Charles Manson could find somebody worse than him. Okay, seriously. But we compare ourselves with ourselves, which is completely the wrong comparison. And then we proclaim ourselves to be good. It's like comparing rotten tomatoes. You know, like if if you're making tomato soup or something and I came to you with two tomatoes and I went, well... They're both rotten, but this one only has five maggots crawling in and out of that hole. This one is actually vibrating in my hand, okay? So I think you should use this one. You'd be like, get out of here with that. Like, bring me an unspoiled tomato. But humanly speaking, which is the whole point, there's only one unspoiled tomato. It's the one that we're learning about. His name is Jesus. And do you know who God compares us to? And since he's the judge, can we agree that that's the comparison that matters? He compares us to him. Uh Uh-oh. Lots of maggots. That's what reveals our need for him, honestly. And before you can come to Jesus, you have to confess the fact that you need to come to Jesus. I mean, if you're just sitting back going, hey, no, I got this thing, I'm good. Okay, well, good equals perfect. That's the law of God. Suddenly now I'm not good, but he is, and and I need him. Listen to what Dr. John Oswald says. I love this guy. He says, the servant, who in the song is Jesus. Okay, the servant, he says, is the measure of how seriously God takes our rebellion and crookedness. We typically wish to make light of our shortcomings and to explain away our mistakes, but God will have none of it. 
The refusal of humanity to bow to the creator's rule and our insistence, here's this, on drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lusts are not shortcomings or mistakes. They are the stuff of death and corruption. And unless someone can be found to stand in our place, they will see us impaled on the swords of our own making and broken on the racks of our own design. Somebody perfect better come along to rescue us. And he says, but someone has been found. Someone has taken on himself the results of our rebelliousness, and we in return have been given the keys of his kingdom. That's a good deal. It's amazing. Isaiah continues in verse 7. He says that Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Why? Because the opening of the mouth would have been in defense, and he's bearing our guilt, and we are guilty. So there's no defense. Like a lamb, the primary animal of sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he, the true lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, which is how Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist in the New Testament. Okay. So the true lamb of God opened not his mouth, But instead, he willingly went to the cross. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and killed, which is what Isaiah says next. For he says, and for his generation, he's speaking of physical children who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That is to say that he really died and he left behind no kids. That's the idea. Stricken, but for what? For the transgression of my people. You're like, well, how do I know if I'm one of his people? By what you do with him. Because he offers himself to everyone. So he's like, if you come, I'm yours, you're mine. You get the idea? He continues, he says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Again, is this written seven to 750 years before he's even born? You remember the story of Jesus? It's startling. Who claims his body? A rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. As it prepared for burial, puts it into his own personal family tomb. I mean, how are we not dealing with a supernatural book? And all of this happens to Jesus, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him instead of us. God has put him to grief instead of us. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection. And this is where he's going. It's undeniable. He says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, which costs him his life, okay, he shall see his offspring. (laughs) How's that going to happen? I mean, I thought he just died. He shall prolong his days. What days? He's, He's dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What hand? A dead, nail-pierced hand rotting away in a grave somewhere? Like, is that... Is that what we're talking about? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied with lifeless eyes? No. He's saying that the one who has suffered and died will be vindicated in resurrection. Payment by God accepted. For who? For all who gather up a crucified Savior and say, here, this is my payment. I owe you a debt. I'm claiming the payment made for me by him. By his knowledge, Isaiah says, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I, God, will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. End of song. So what were the questions? Why did God send Jesus into the world? Well, the simple and startling answer is so that he could have a relationship with you. That's it. You know, every Thursday night at 7 o'clock at Alpha, Beth and I have been there. And I've been loving it. Like, we hadn't done it in a while, and now we're back in it. And I've been watching these videos, and I'm like, these guys are amazing. So you have dinner, then you got a 25-minute video, and then you break out in discussion groups. And, and anybody can say whatever they want in the groups. It's, it's like set up intentionally in that way. So just bring whatever it is. But the video, the last video, was really great. And Nikki Gumbel, like I'm sitting there knowing this is what I'm talking, and he, he spoke to this particular passage, and he did an illustration that I'm stealing completely from him because I thought it was awesome. He's like, God is up here, and you're here. And God wants you, and what's the problem? There's a book much fatter than this full of all the things that stand between you and him. And that's the way that it works in relationship, is it not? I mean, every married person knows this. You know, you offend your spouse, it gets a bit quiet, does it? I mean, things are broken, like it doesn't work out until there is repentance, until there is forgiveness, until there is reconciliation, until this is dealt with both ways. God so loved you that he had to deal with this. That he sent Jesus, who has none of this. You get the idea? He lived the perfect life. And what do we do? By faith, we take this and we put it on him. And he has suffered and he dies. He's crucified to put this to death in his own body. The price of his own life. By the power of his own blood. But where does that leave us? With none of this and nothing between us and God. It's magnificent. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To do that for all who will have him. Who did God send Jesus into the world for? For all who will have him. For all who see that and go, oh my goodness, I, you're right, I got the book, like, and I got to get rid of this thing. <laughs> like, this is a problem that I haven't taken seriously, but that God takes very seriously and by faith puts that on Christ. But then lastly, why do people miss him? I think it's because we look at him and fail to realize that what he endured is what we deserve. It's a self-awareness issue. So I close with this. Do you know Jesus? Have you recognized your need for him? And if not, listen, we're going to be up here after the service. would love to talk to you, pray with you, try to answer any questions that you might have. Uh, Really, that would be fantastic. Uh, if not, and you're still like, mm, I don't know that I want to, you know, like, but you're willing to explore the possibility, 7 o'clock Thursday, the building behind me, good food, really well done video, and great conversation. I invite you to do that. But then secondly, do, if you do know Jesus, then are you following him or have you, you know, followed the clumps of grass and all of a sudden you went, holy cow, you know, like and in this moment you're going, or something scared you and you bolted away. And then you ran into the bear and you're like, ah, where am I? Because the heart of the good shepherd is not to kick you back to the pen. It's to come looking until he finds you, to get down in the dirt with you, to pick you up, 
to carry you home, to clean you up, and to reintroduce you into his community. A community full of sheep who go, bring it in. Come on home. And he uses moments like this to do that. So where are you at? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, he's like, I take all comers. And if you've been away, and now you're awake, you're like, I've looked up, then he's come to find you. Okay? Let me pray for you. Father, we we thank you um, for your love, which, to be honest, is beyond our ability to comprehend. Now, Lord, as we flip through the pages of the books of our lives, we... We're reminded of things we've suppressed, frankly, because they're not pretty. They don't speak well of us, and it's traumatic to deal with that. And yet, Lord, we are reminded today that you've not left us there, though that is in fact what we deserved. But instead, for reasons known only to you, you so loved us that you sent Jesus into this world to take that from us, that you might have us that you might give to us abundant life, eternal life, mission, purpose, meaning, relationship, family, all of these things. God, go to work in our hearts. Give us faith in the work of our champion who is Jesus, of our good shepherd who comes and seeks us out when we are lost and collapsed within it. Find us this day, we pray. Bring us to faith in Christ and bring us back into the fold. We pray this for your glory and with great gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.